Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We've heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up. Let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if plunders came by night, how you would have been destroyed. Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Teman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother and the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. But in Mount Zion, there shall be those who escape. And it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire. The house of Joseph a flame. And the house of Esau, stubble. They shall burn them and consume them. And there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau. For the Lord has spoken. Those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau, and those of Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of his host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. And the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Shepherad shall possess the cities of the Negev. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion 
to rule Mount Esau. And the kingdom shall be the Lord's. What a great pleasure it is to know that You are God. Truly, Lord, there is many things that cause our hearts to tremble. Some insignificant. Some horrible. Some we have no uh, mental capacity to truly grasp. Lord, it seems like the world is on fire. It's troubling to see the chaos and the pain and, and the insanity. And it's easy to despair at times. To lose hope. And yet, what peace is brought when we turn our eyes upon You. As the song says, to, to look full in Your wonderful face. And all the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of Your glory and Your grace. You are our hope. And God, we need hope. We need hope today. I pray for my brothers and sisters, for, particularly for those who have been hurt, who are still metaphorically bleeding from the wounds that they have incurred in this world, whether by sin or by Others, that You would bring healing even through Your Word this afternoon. Lord, I pray that You would strengthen my brothers and sisters to endure in this life. Again, that Your Word would give them life as You say it will. And I pray that You would allow me to be an effective arrow that points to You. Lord, that we would see You as You are clearly manifested in Your prophet Obadiah that we would be that our minds would be set upon things above cuz we need that lord for our own hope and confidence work through your word now we ask this in your name amen one of the most heartbreaking things a person can go through is to put their trust in somebody and have that person that you've trusted to stab you in the back And this was the experience of the Roman Emperor Tiberius, who was the Roman Emperor at the time of Christ. We know that Christ was born during the reign of Caesar Augustus. It it tells us that in Luke chapter 2, or Luke 1 maybe. Um, And then after Augustus, Tiberius reigned. And Tiberius had had a, a decent reign as far as the emperors were concerned. But he was a fairly lonely man. And as part of his reign, he appointed a man named Sejanus, who was the prefect over the Praetorian Guard. That was the uh, like the the secret service of the of the emperor and the emperor's family. And through a combination of energetic efficiency and fawning sycophancy and different outward displays of loyalty, he ended up gaining the full trust of Tiberius. And Tiberius really appointed him as his closest friend and his advisor. So anything that happened in the empire went through went through Sejanus. Tiberius openly praised him as the partner of all my labors. 
But Sejanus had his own ideas. And his first subversive act was he seduced the wife of Tiberius' son. And then the two of them ended up killing Tiberius' son. About this time, Sejanus then convinces Tiberius to leave his rule in Rome and to go take an extremely extended vacation on the island of Capri. And with Tiberius gone, over the next ten years, Sejanus really became the effective emperor of Rome. All the decisions that happened in the Roman Empire went through him. He eventually convinced Tiberius to allow him to marry his son's widow, which basically solidified him as the heir apparent of Tiberius. All that Sejanus needed was to get rid of Tiberius, and he would now be emperor. But word finally reached Tiberius's ears of this intrigue, and Tiberius went straight to Rome and had Sejanus executed. And anybody that happened to be with Sejanus in this whole plot. But the affair sent Tiberius into a massive depression because he no longer knew who he could trust. He had basically set up his own son for his murder. He had abandoned his family, according to the counsel of Sejanus. And from this point on, Tiberius became extremely paranoid in all his dealings. He spent long hours brooding over the death of his son. And anybody, again, that had actually collaborated with Sejanus, he had executed and tortured in some of the most barbaric fashions imaginable. And as a result, no measures were taken for the succession of the empire. And therefore, after Tiberius died, the lot fell to Caligula. And if you know much about Roman history, Caligula was mentally insane and further brought the Roman Empire into destruction. The most powerful man in the world at the time of Christ was destroyed through betrayal. And the betrayal was even more hurtful because it was a man whom he had opened up his heart to, he had entrusted, he had kind of accepted into his own family and treated like a son. And likewise for us, when we have allowed our trust to be betrayed, when we get stabbed in the back by our friends or especially by our family, the emotional fallout is incalculable. We've trusted and then been betrayed. It's easy to grow bitter. It's easy to grow discouraged. And so it it demands that we ask the question, when that happens to us, how do we respond? Because there's a million different ways we can respond. We can grow bitter. We can grow angry. And we're tempted to understand not just how are we to respond, but we're tempted to try and we begin to doubt God's plan in all of it. And so we ask, how, how would God have us respond in the midst of being betrayed? How does God respond when he sees his loved ones get stabbed in the back? And the book of Obadiah 
is essentially the answer to that question. The book is an announcement of judgment upon the nation of Edom. The nation of Edom was blood relatives of the Israelites, the descendants of Esau, Jacob's brother. And this whole book is really, again, an announcement of judgment against what the Edomites did against Israel in in the 8th century B.C. And so you have the outline there, Edom's arrogance, Edom's errors, and then finally a discussion of Edom's future judgment. Let's look firstly at Edom's arrogance, verses 1 through 9. Verse 1, it says, Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom, We've heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up! Let us rise against her for battle. The Hebrew text begins by saying, The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord concerning Edom. And what should stand out there is who's being addressed. He's proclaiming a message to Israel, but it's about Obadiah. It's completely concerned, sorry, it's about Edom. It's completely concerned with Edom. But it's not for Edom, it's for Israel. This judgment is on behalf of Israel. It's for Israel's comfort and peace. And we should ask ourselves, well, why would this horrible prophecy bring comfort and peace to Israel? Well, this is seen somewhat in the, the phrase, heard a report. The word indicates that God is sending out a messenger among the nations to give this announcement. God is stirring up all the nations around Israel to come against Edom to attack them because of what they've done. He's going to use all these nations together to punish Edom. So imagine a high school student, maybe a freshman, whose father is the principal of the school. And he finds out that his son has been beat up by some bully. But instead of expelling the bully or suspending the bully, instead what he does is he sends an announcement out to the football team, to the soccer team, to the cheerleading squad, to the chess club, and he sends out this announcement to bring them all together to bring about destruction upon that offending student. And the point being... God is really fired up about what Edom did to Israel. It was bad, as we'll see. And God says Edom will be judged in three ways. They will be humiliated, they will be plundered dry, and like they did to Israel, they will be stabbed in the back by their allies. In verse 2 it says, Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. So the first phrase in this verse is echoed by the second phrase. The term small means to be insignificant, one that would be overlooked. So he's going to turn this strong and mighty nation that had so much confidence in itself, he's going to turn it into essentially a ghost town. They will be despised. Which means they'll be counted as less than nothing. They'll be worthless in the eyes of others. And he explains why in the next verse. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? 
So he doesn't give any of the specifics yet of Edom's crimes. That's going to be explained later. But what he does do is he goes right to the root of what caused Edom to do what they did. It was all because of pride. It was their pride. God is judging Edom because of its arrogance. And he's going to make that proud nation humble. The nation which had boasted in its might, in its wealth, in its security, will become anything but mighty and secure because of its arrogance. And Edom was proud for two main reasons. It was incredibly wealthy and it was comfortably secure. The reason for its wealth is it had some copper mines which it used. But really beyond the the real reason for Edom's wealth is uh, it was located on a major trade route called the King's Highway. All of the trade that went from the Red Sea to the Dead Sea went through Edom's territory. And so they would gain quite a bit of tax revenue from this. Edom was really built out of an economy of trade. And so they gained great wealth. Not only that, they were incredibly secure. The cities of Edom were actually built in mountain passes. And as you can see in that photo there, some were actually literally carved out of the rock way up high. And so one would actually have to ascend this rock in order to conquer Edom. So they were hardly worried about any retribution from Israel for what they did or really any other nation. They were confident in their security. And so they were proud. The word pride actually is derived from the word that that means to boil up. It, in fact, describes what Esau did to his stew, that lentil stew. It was boiled up. In fact, that root uh, occurs three times in that account of Esau's squandered birthright. It describes food or water that boils up under pressure. And so essentially the imagery is that to, to be proud is to be puffed up in your mind, to think more highly of yourself than you ought to think, to be confident. One person described it this way. It's the mindset of self. A master's mindset rather than that of a servant. A focus on self and the services of self. A pursuit of self-recognition and self-exaltation and a desire to control and use all things for self. And notice what the Lord says about the pride. It says that pride has deceived you. The pride has deceived you. It's again the word that describes Eve's deception by Satan. It's personified as a trickster. One who promises great things if you will trust it, but then it runs out of town when it's exposed as a fraud. Similar to the, the, the great story of the emperor's new clothes, right? The emperor invites these tailors into his home. And these, because these tailors said, we will make you the most magnificent clothes out of the most magnificent thread, there's just a catch. We need gold in order to make the thread. It's golden thread. So if you give us gold, we will spend night and day working and creating this thread and we'll, and we'll make for you these elaborate clothes that only those who have wise eyes, those who have wisdom, will be able to see. And you can know who's wise in your kingdom and who's stupid in your kingdom based upon 
if they're able to see the clothes or not. So the king, the emperor, thinks this is a great idea. And the emperor kept providing them gold and thread for the tailors, but the tailors kept filling their pockets. And after they had given these you know, so-called clothes to the emperor, and the emperor goes out and parades himself in front of all the subjects, and all the subjects, of course, are applauding because they don't want to be exposed as being foolish. They're applauding and saying how great the, the clothes are. Until a young girl cries out, the emperor has no clothes on. And then everybody knew. And the emperor knew. But by that time, the, the tailors were long gone. The emperor had been duped into giving out all this gold. But those who duped him were gone. And that is the way pride works. Pride promises great things. Pride tells us, You can do anything you want. In fact, you deserve whatever you want. You deserve to be lauded. You deserve wealth and security and strength. You deserve respect. But it's a fraud. And Edom had grabbed hold of the lie, hook, line, and sinker. And because of that, that pride is going to bring Edom down to destruction. And we can see pride is deceitful in two ways. First of all, it's deceitful in its promises. It it promises you the world, but pride in itself has no power to actually give you what it's promising. You notice that? It tells you you deserve something, but what? Pride can't give you that. It has no power. Secondly, it's deceitful because it's hard to identify in oneself. Have you noticed that it's really easy to see pride in other people? Just how proud people are around you? But it's hard to see in ourselves. It's like a chameleon. It camouflages itself according to our strengths. And so we don't see it. Here's a list of manifestations of pride that I found. And I give it to you, to you so that you might be able to Locate pride in your own heart. Again, not in other people's, but in your own heart. So that when you see it, you can kill it like a weed in a garden. Some manifestations of pride. A lack of gratitude. Not being thankful. We don't get what we think we deserve. Or anger. We get angry when our rights or expectations aren't met. Perfectionism, which is the root of that is a longing for recognition. Talking too much. The idea is what you have to say is more important than what others have to say. Seeking independence or control. The idea that, that we need to be in charge. We know what's best. Being consumed by what others think. Others need to have a high, or maybe just we'll call it an accurate opinion of ourselves. This is also manifested by being devastated by criticism. Being unteachable, being a person who, who thinks you know it all already. A lack of service. That is, you're not thinking about the needs that other people have around you. You're just focused on what you need, what you want. This could also be manifested in a lack of compassion. When you see another person's need, but you don't sympathize or care, you're hardened. 
defensiveness or blame shifting. The idea is that you don't have faults. If somebody sees something in you that you make an excuse because they must not see you accurately. Because you don't have the faults that you might that others might imagine you have. A lack of prayer. The idea that you can do this without God's power. Using attention getting tactics. It could be talking about your problems, your woes. It could be dressing in an odd manner or um, in a way to get attention somehow through bizarre behavior. A lack of admitting when you're wrong. Resisting authority or being disrespectful. Voicing preferences or opinions when you're not asked. Maximizing other people's sins or shortcomings. Being impatient or irritable with others. Being deceitful. Covering up your sin when it might get exposed so that others might not see your faults or mistakes. There's many ways pride manifests itself. And it's easy to see it in other people. The the challenge is that we would see how deceitful it is and take it seriously when it creeps into our own hearts. We all struggle with these things. Some of us more than others know what you struggle with. Because if you don't take it seriously, you will be deceived. And like Edom, you will be led to do the same or similar things that Edom did. You'll be led into sin. And Edom's pride was manifested, particularly in its overconfidence. In its pride, Edom wondered, who will bring me down? And Edom gets its answer in verse 4. The Lord says, though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down. And therefore, the second way Edom will experience God's judgment is that it will be plundered dry. It's going to lose everything. Describes thieves coming to them by night. But notice, the key, most, most of the time th- when thieves come into a home, they come to steal something, right? Notice what these thieves do. They take everything. And then he describes grape gatherers. And naturally, grape gatherers, as they're gathering grapes, they're going to miss some. But not these. Everything will be taken. In their destruction... Nations are going to come against Edom, not simply to take things from them, but to absolutely destroy Edom, to wipe it off the map. Nothing's going to be left behind. Edom is going to be a ghost town because of what they did. And the third way Edom will experience the judgment of God is that it's going to be likewise stabbed in the back by its allies. It says, all your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. And you have no understanding. So Edom is actually going to get stabbed in the back by the people it trusted. And these allies are described in three ways. They're allies. The word that's used is men of a covenant. Men that they've sat down and shaken hands with. They've made a deal with. They're described as those at peace with you. It speaks that they've made a military or a political alliance with them. It's like they're the Peter, people of their own political party is the idea. And they're, they're people who have eaten bread. 
That is, they were like trusted friends, people who they've, they've sat at the table with, enjoyed conversation and communion and fellowship with. Those people, their allies, are going to be who stabs Edom in the back. And they're probably the nations that are described in Amos chapter 1. We're not going to look at that. But these are the nations that in Amos 1 go on to attack Israel. Ammon, Tyre, Damascus, Gaza. Essentially, it's the Ammonites, the Philistines, and the Syrians. And they make a massive assault against Israel. And Edom, during that whole time, basically just encourages these allies. And in verse 7, Edom's allies' actions are described in three ways. They're going to drive Edom to its borders. They're going to drive them out of town. They're going to deceive them. They're going to trick Edom into trusting them. And they're going to trap them. Set up a, a snare for them. And the verse ends by saying, you have no understanding of what you're up against, Edom. You think you do by putting your whole trust in these friends, but these friends are going to come after you. And the verse also serves to drive the next few verses because Edom made these alliances because it prided itself in its wisdom. Its pride in its wisdom is what brings it down. Verse 8. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Teman. So that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Edom prided itself in its wisdom. In fact, one of Job's friends, Eliphaz the Timnite, it's, a, it's an Edomite city. In fact, the, most scholars uh, that, that have studied Job believe Job was also an Edomite king. And the fact that that whole book is about wisdom and all those friends of Job were also Edomite kings. It was known for its wisdom. Yet Edom will be humbled for it thought that it was wise in its alliances that it made with these neighboring countries. And no doubt, that's why it felt like it could shirk Israel, not help Israel, because it had these alliances. But what it thought was wise is going to turn out to actually be utter foolishness. They've opened their gates And the people they've trusted are going to humiliate, plunder, and overpower them. I remember when I was in college, I would get these emails from different random people, treasure hunters maybe they were called in Africa, who said they desperately needed help. And they said, if you help us out, we we found this treasure, we just need to get it out of the country. So if you just send us your bank account number, uh, give us a hundred bucks, then we'll give you a share of the profits. And later on, a few years after that, I, was, I watched this television special on these scam artists. And it said the way they worked is they would pitch a story that would get people to trust them. That was the key. If they could come up with a story that would lend people to believe them and trust them and would offer them something that they would want, namely money usually, then they could, they could get so many people that way. Build trust and give people something they want. And that's essentially how the Edomites were duped. And this is how pride dupes us. 
and Edom by trusting in these allies, these allies turned against them and left them with nothing but shock. And in verses 10, God explains why this judgment's coming upon them, their errors. Verses 10 through 14, God explains these reasons, but a, a fuller account is seen in 2 Chronicles 21, verses 8 through 17. But it doesn't say a whole lot about it. This is what it does say. In his days, Edom revolted from the rule of Judah and set up a king of their own. Then Jehoram passed over with his commanders and all his chariots, and he rose up by night and struck the Edomites who had surrounded him and his chariot commanders. And skip to verse 16. And the Lord stirred up against Jehoram the anger of the Philistines and of the Arabians who are near the Ethiopians. And they came up against Judah and invaded it and carried away all the possessions they had found belonging to the king's house and also his sons and his wives, so that no son was left to him except Jehoahaz, his youngest son. So the idea of these, these Philistines and these Arabians come against Israel and plunder it. Obadiah actually elucidates more about Edom's role, beginning in verse 10. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. In verse 10, you need to know it's the overarching verse of the rest of this section. And it's seen in the word violence. All the following verses really describe the violence that Edom did to Jacob. The word violence is probably a familiar word to you. It's the word Hamas. It's where the Palestinian terrorist organization gets its name. It means violence, moral wrong, or overt physical brutality is how it's used in Scripture. And this violence is done against their brother Jacob. And it recalls the close kinship that Edom had with Jacob. They were both uh, descendants of Abraham. And therefore, I mean, e- even Esau benefited as part of the Abrahamic covenant that was given to Abraham and to Isaac. And therefore, the violence that Edom commits against Israel isn't just against some random enemy. It's against their brother. It's against their cousins. And that's what makes it so awful. And the consequence of their violence against their brother is going to be twofold, it says. I'm going to bring you shame, and you're going to be cut off forever. And there was a, there was a fulfillment in part of this in the Old Testament, in the 6th century. The Edomites actually got taken captive when Nabonidus of Babylon came in and destroyed Israel. Edom got destroyed as well along with them. That's when their shame took place. It actually says in Jeremiah 27, 3 through 7, that shame covered them. And they were cut off forever when the Romans eventually conquered the territory under the Roman general Pompey in the last century BC. And after that, there's very little ever known of the Edomites. Um, We have glimpses of some generational Edomites in the New Testament. Herod was called the Idumean, I-D-U-M-E-A-N, because he was, a, he was actually part Edomite. He was an Edomite king, ruling in Israel.
but eventually they will be completely wiped off. Herod was really the last reference. And they uh, participated in the revolt against Rome in 70 B.C. And then after that, we, we hear of no Edomite ever again. Edom will be destroyed because of its treatment to his brother. That's why. And the familial allusion comes up a number of times. Look at verse 11. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. So they're, they're going to be judged because of the aloofness during the violence. The fact that they just stood by aloof is equated actually to committing the violence itself. See, Edom had actually plotted with these nations that came against Israel. But it stood by as it watched its brother get robbed and beat up and humiliated. But Edom and Jacob were the same stock. And God is emphasizing the incredible arrogance that Edom would just stand by and watch when its brother was being assaulted. And we know from the rest of the passage that not only was it aloof, but actually participated. It took advantage of, of Jacob's plundering. It says in verse 12, But do not gloat over the day of your brother and the day of his misfortune. Don't rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Don't boast in the day of their distress. They gloated over Judah's misfortune. They stood by and said, Ha! It serves you right! Continues in verse 13, Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Don't gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Don't loot his wealth. They loot Jacob in the midst of all this chaos. They take advantage of the calamity. So as Jacob is getting beat up by its allies, Edom's standing by and takes advantage of the situation, not just by watching, but while they see their brother lying in a pool of blood, Edom walks up behind them and picks his pocket from his brother as he bleeds out unconscious. That's the imagery. Takes part in the robbing. So the Lord says in verse 14, Don't stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives and hand over his survivors in the day of distress. And I think this is, this is probably the worst thing of all. Because the people of Judah ran for the border as they saw these assaulting nations surrounding them to cut them off. All of the fugitives, all of the survivors that were alive, the, the women and the children were, were fleeing. Edom standing at the crossroads. And as these people run by to Edom seeking safety, the Edomites take out their swords and they start hacking all of the survivors to death. And those they don't kill, they end up dragging off into slavery. They did this to their cousins. These are the people the Israelites thought they could at least trust. But they were stabbed in the back. And because of that, God sends this prophecy to Obadiah. So that the Israelites might be comforted. comforted, Because very little is even known about this event in history. But what the Lord wants the Israelites to know is that He saw. He saw it. And there's not one evil deed that will not go unpunished. If it wasn't for Obadiah, we might never have known what happened. 
especially since Israel was fairly small and insignificant. Even on a world scale, even at that time, probably very few nations actually knew what took place. It was this isolated, hidden incident. And what could, what could Israel do? They were destroyed. They were plundered. They couldn't get vengeance. But God noticed. And I have no idea how each one of you might have been betrayed. How you might have been stabbed in the back in your past. In fact, nobody may know. It might have been by a family member you trusted. It might have been by a best friend. The point that the Lord was trying to communicate to you here is that He knows. There is not one wrong that is done against you that He overlooks. He sees it all. And He will bring about His judgment. No wrong will go unpunished. Finally, verses 15 through 21 describe Edom's future judgment. And it begins with the phrase, For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. The day of the Lord is, is the biblical reference to the day when God will bring about really world peace. God's day of judgment. God's day of wrath. And like other prophecies, the day of the Lord often has an immediate fulfillment, maybe a few years after the prophecy, a few generations after the prophecy. But it also has this future fulfillment. And that's the case here. The immediate fulfillments of the day of the Lord typify the coming judgment that God is going to ultimately bring at the end of the ages. And there are five reasons why scholars believe this judgment is still to come. That it didn't happen in B.C. It's still yet to happen. And the first is, verses 1 through 14 actually just deal with Edom alone. But there's an abrupt shift at verse 15 that begins to include all the nations along with Edom in their judgment. You'll also note, verses 1 through 14, Edom actually becomes a pattern for the way that God is going to bring about judgment on all the nations. It's just what happens to Edom is eventually going to happen to all the nations that rise up against Israel. So the scope of this prophecy goes from just being national in consideration to being international. It's a worldwide judgment at this point. Thirdly, we know from other parts of Scripture that the destruction of the nations, the subjugation of the nations, when every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus is Lord, is still yet to happen. It hasn't happened yet. It's an eschatological event. Another reason, fourthly, is uh, Israel's restoration to vitality. In verses 17 through 21, it describes this restoration that will really won't happen, still hasn't happened, until Christ comes to reign on earth. Fifthly, and I think this is the most convincing, is that it states in verse 21 that the kingdom will be the Lord's. And you have to ask yourself, how is that different than the present? With Obadiah. Because it's describing Israel. Israel is already the Lord's kingdom. So why is it saying eventually the kingdom will be the Lord's? It's this promise, this assurance. Well, it's because it's going to be the Lord's in a sense that it has never been the Lord's. And that will become clear as we 
look at these verses. First of all, it says Edom is going to be destroyed along with the other nations, verses 15 and 16. Describes Edom having their day upon God's mountain. God says, you've had your day, now I'm going to have my day upon you. Edom and all these other nations that had come against Israel to attack them will receive their full consequences. And it, and it uses this metaphor of drinking a cup. And when, the, when this metaphor, when it's used in Scripture, it describes the pouring out of God's wrath. For instance, Psalm 75 says, For the Lord holds in His hand a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices and pours it out. And surely all the wicked of the earth will slurp it up and drink it to its very last drop. The point is that they're drinking the full measure of God's wrath. And so when Christ returns, Edom will receive God's wrath along with the other nations. The second thing to notice about Edom's future judgment is Israel will conquer these besieging nations that come against it, that are trying to take the promised land. But instead of taking Israel, Israel will take them, is the idea. But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy, and the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them. And there shall be no survivor of the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. What this is describing is that in the last days, all these nations are going to come against Jerusalem to try and wipe it off the map. And they're going to converge on a valley called Megiddo. And this battle that's going to take place is called the Battle of Armageddon. And when this takes place when all these nations prepare to rise up against Israel it's at that time we see in scripture that the Lord himself will descend with a shout upon these nations and subjugate them and that is why Israel is described as a flame and Edom as stubble if you know what happens when dry straw gets a spark Onto it. You can fill out that imagery. It'll consume everything in its path. So a remnant of the revived Edom is going to be a part again of these nations attacking Israel. And they will be destroyed. And then finally you have this promise of the Messiah's reign. Verse 21. When Christ comes to return and aid Israel... In the destruction of all its enemies, he's going to come and establish his literal kingdom upon the earth. And the resurrected saints at that time will come with him and assist, with, assist him with the governance. And that's really what's being spoken of here. It says in verse 21, saviors, notice it's plural, saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. That word saviors is the same word that is used in the book of Judges to describe the men and women God raised up to protect Israel in the time when men did what was right in their own eyes. God is going to raise up saviors. It describes these divinely empowered leaders, these judges. And they're going to participate in the destruction of Edom and all the other nations that have come against the Lord's kingdom. 
And these are the same people that are described in Revelation 19.14. Who come with Christ in his destruction. In this section it's describing Christ. And in verse 14 it says, The armies that are in heaven, dressed in white, clean, fine linen, were following him on white horses. So Christ is on this white horse coming to bring destruction. And these armies follow him. And from his mouth extends a sharp sword so that he can strike the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he stomps the winepress of the furious wrath of God, the all-powerful. So these people following him are the saints. And they are going to rule with Christ. That's why they're called judges or saviors. In 1 Corinthians 6, 3... Paul, Paul right, uh, suggests this question as he talks about the quarreling, the conflict that's going on in the midst of the church. And he asks the Corinthians, he says, Corinthians, do you not know that the saints are going to judge the world? Why then do you go outside for other people to judge your conflicts? If you're going to judge the world, you guys should be able to resolve your own problems. You're going to judge the world. We're going to judge the world. And it will begin at this moment when Christ returns. But of course, what's ultimately important is that the Christ will rule. And fulfill what he prophesied in Ezekiel 37, 24 and 28. Notice this text. My servant David shall be king over them. And they shall all have one shepherd And they shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I give to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. They and their children, their children's children, shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. And I will make my covenant of peace with them. And it shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them. And will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place shall be with them. And I will be their God. And they shall be my people. And the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel. When my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. And this is, this is what we are all looking forward to. This is our hope. When Christ returns and brings about the peace that he has promised centuries past. But this whole message of Obadiah is really about the doom and gloom that's coming upon Edom. And the good news that's offered in it is despite the fact that Edom got away with what they did, these violent crimes against Israel went largely unnoticed. The fact is God did notice. And God will bring about judgment and repay Edom for stabbing his brother in the back. And so you're probably wondering, how does this apply to us? How does this message apply to us in the 21st century? Well, here's some thoughts. Overall, the main message is hope. The message is hope that even when we are afflicted, even when we are hurt, God will be faithful to punish evildoers. I think secondly, also, you can embrace with confidence the faithfulness of God. 
The fact that God is repaying judgment upon Edom is because of the promise that he made to Abraham centuries past. When God said, those who bless you, I will bless Abraham, and those who curse you, I will curse. Edom cursed, in a sense, Israel. God is being faithful to his covenant with Abraham. And the point is, God keeps all of his promises. If God says it, it will happen. And it may not happen when we expect. It may not happen in our lifetime. But God will keep all of his promises. Not one word will pass away from his word. And I think certainly we can all take a warning from the root cause of Edom's violence and subsequent destruction. Pride. What led Edom to do what it did is the same thing that leads us to do what we do. And the small sins that we commit and the great sins that we commit. We need to take our pride seriously. It's deception and it's destruction. But something you might not have expected to see in Obadiah is an incredible extension of forgiveness to those who repent. This is really cool. In Amos 9.12, Amos prophesies that in the end times, there will be Edomites that repent and believe in the Lord. And then James actually... The Apostle James in Acts 15 actually takes that prophecy and applies it to believing Gentiles. So consider this. After they finished speaking, James replied. So this is James' response to should we require the, these Gentile peoples who have repented and trusted in Christ, should we require them to follow aspects of uh, Jewish law? And this is James' response. Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it's written. So he quotes Amos 9. After this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins. I will restore it. That the remnant of mankind, in Amos 9.12, that's Edom, that the remnant of Edom, James switches it to mankind to make it more broad, that the remnant of Edom may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from old. Therefore, my judgment, this is James' summary, is that we should not trouble those Gentiles who turn to God. See, James and all the other apostles recognize that despite the rebellion of all mankind, all these Gentile nations that, is, that have warred against Israel throughout history and have rebelled against God, that God has extended through Christ mercy to these nations, that if they submit to Christ, if they repent from their sin and they ask Him to forgive them, that God will forgive them because Christ paid the penalty for their sin. Not just the sins of Israel, but Christ paid the penalty for the sins of the whole world. Christ's death was sufficient to wipe out all the sins of all who would believe in Him. God is extending mercy to all the nations, not just Israel. 
As you recall what it says in the book of John, God so loved the world. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that who should ever believe in Him might not perish but receive everlasting life. And the point is that this message is for the criminals, not just the victims. God extends mercy to repentant Edomites. And so, you might have been a person who's been stabbed in the back by your best friend, by a family member, or you might have been the person that's actually stabbed your brother in the back. The point is, the message of mercy is for you as well. That if you repent, and acknowledge the sins that you've committed and ask God to wipe you clean, to change your heart, there is not one sin that He will not forgive. If you trust in Christ, you are completely forgiven, washed clean, and you shall be made white as snow. And that's why when it describes the saints coming with Christ in His judgment upon the nations, what are those saints wearing? They're wearing white robes, symbolizing they have been made clean through the blood of Christ. And God will forgive and forget all your sin if you trust in what He has made available to you through His Son. Lord, You search us And You know us. You see our every move. You see our every motive. You know all of what we've done. You know our sin. And You know that none of us can approach Your throne. None of us can make ourselves clean through our own efforts. If any man might enter the kingdom of God, it is not because of what they've done, either for good or for evil. We can come into Your presence through one thing and one thing alone. By trusting in the blood that was shed on our behalf through the sacrifice of the Lamb of God. And because of that, Jesus, You are not only our only hope, You are all of our hope. You are our treasure. Help us to treasure You more. That we wouldn't fear. That we wouldn't seek to take vengeance into our own hands. That we wouldn't seek to take control over all the chaos in the world. But that we would be faithful that we would trust and that we would be patient as we are still and as we know that You are the Lord and that You will bring about judgment when You see fit. We thank You that You will not bring judgment upon us because You've forgiven us. Help us to take that message of forgiveness to all the nations that all might be saved. We pray these things in Your name.
Amen.